This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, reversing what doctors used to learn, that to practice good medicine, they should never show their emotions. Really, it goes a step further to not so much not display, but to literally not feel. Restoring doctors' compassion when Radio Health Journal returns. Here's something you may not have considered when you visit the dentist. Your mouth is the gateway to the body. It's where germs enter. Saliva and other material from the mouths of dozens of patients per day builds up inside the vacuum tube and saliva ejection valve. And Dr. Jerry Cohen, clinical assistant professor at a dental school in the Midwest, says if backflow occurs in the saliva ejection valve, it may expose patients to dangerous infectious material. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, backflow occurs in about one in five patients who close their lips around a saliva evacuator tip, pulling liquid and any germs left behind by the last patient back into a person's mouth. That's why Dove backflow prevention valves from Stoma Dental are a critical technology to prevent cross-contamination. The new disposable Dove backflow prevention valve from Stoma Dental is a one-way valve that prevents backflow and eliminates cross-contamination between patients. Dentists can have a new level of confidence in their infection control efforts, and patients can too. Find out more at BeSafeDental.com. Some of life's most emotional moments happen in hospitals and doctor's offices. The birth of a child, the death of a loved one, the test showing we have a life-threatening illness, the news that we're cured. So most people want their doctors to be caring, feeling human beings, not robots. Yet that's not what many of today's doctors learned in medical school. Starting in the 1960s, many doctors learned that they had to bottle up their emotions if they were going to be good doctors. It was all due to a study by a prominent medical sociologist at the time. She wrote about the socialization into medicine and called it socialization for detached concern. One had to learn to not be so emotionally involved in the stuff that they couldn't be objective. That's Dr. Joseph O'Donnell, professor of medicine and psychiatry at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth College. He says the advice to be detached was well-intentioned. How do you develop this equanimitas, this calmness in the face of disaster? When a surgeon is facing a complication in the OR, one of the ways in which great surgeons work is things slow down for them rather than speed up. They're actually able to work through the problems. And when a medical emergency happens, you know, the great people that take care of those things slow down for them. And they're able to be objective about what the next step is. What do we do here? What do we do there? And not have their emotions or their fears, you know, sort of determining their decisions. But you can get way too much of that. You can get way too detached, way too calm, and that's not what patients want. O'Donnell says even the author of the original study ultimately had second thoughts about it. Yes, doctors have to be able to give tough diagnoses, and they often lose patients. But many were becoming too detached and were starting to get a reputation for lacking compassion, even if it was a survival mechanism. There was definitely more of a striving to have a detached demeanor because of the complexities and the emotional strain that is involved, was involved then as it is now with dealing with sick and dying people 
and children and complex family situations that the way to survive psychologically was best if you did not allow your heartstrings to play. Dr. Dean Parmalee is professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at Wright State University's Boomshoff School of Medicine. He says the advice to show no emotion was all-encompassing and ultimately destructive. Really, it goes a step further to not so much not display, but to literally not feel. I do not want to repress or suppress those feelings. I cannot allow myself to be upset. I cannot allow myself to be sad or angry or in any way embroiled in my emotions with what's going on. And that takes a lot of energy. You go numb. It numbs you from the pain. And the thing about numbness and numbing you from pain, that numbness goes across all the emotions, and so you don't love as well, or you don't experience things as well if you're numb. The result has been a lot of burned-out doctors trying to deny their humanity and their pain, and a lot of unhappy patients thinking their doctors don't care. That leads inevitably to litigation, because if there's not a connection wherein a family or patient feels that the physician has cared and done the best he or she could, and that there's a bad outcome, that makes a lot of business for the lawyers. That's the root of most malpractice cases, is poor communication. And good communication comes from building a relationship that is enduring and provides compassion and support for patients and families. But where did the detached model of the modern physician come from? Medical students were being told all the right things in the classroom, be compassionate, caring, and altruistic. But Parmalee and O'Donnell say that's not what they saw when they looked around. The hidden curriculum and institutional culture powerfully tell new doctors this is the way to behave. Even though it was not an expressed matter, it was one of those cultural phenomenons that occurred without it needing to be even articulated based on just role models and behavioral standards. The hidden curriculum can be both a positive and a negative influence, and it's a negative influence when we say, this is the way people are supposed to behave, and then they see us, the students see us behaving in completely the opposite way. And that behavior is much more important than what we say, it's what we do. So the hidden curriculum is very, very powerful. But there's a growing movement that realizes medicine needs to reclaim its soul. Both O'Donnell and Parmalee teach a class at their respective schools designed to combat the destructive part of the hidden curriculum. The class is called The Healer's Art, and it started nearly 25 years ago at the University of California, San Francisco. Since then, the class has spread to about half of America's medical schools. It's taught in four or five three-hour sessions, each with a theme. The first is on bringing a doctor's whole self to patient encounters. It has an exercise where students and faculty are asked to draw a picture of the part of them they feel they can't bring to the bedside. But there's something very comforting about that. They draw with crayons and then name that attribute that they're not being taught to bring to the bedside of a sick patient, that if they did, it would be very important. And literally, at all of the Healers Art courses across the nation, it's the same stuff. It's compassion and love and service and creativity and some of the words that they use that are done in their shadow that they are then sanctioned to bring in. And they talk to other students about that and realize that they're all in the same boat. They're all worried about, man, am I losing as I go on in this process and becoming less like a layperson, more like a doctor. Some of the stuff that defines me as a person 
and how do I preserve that? One way of preserving that is for doctors to realize that they're not always in control, and the news they have to give isn't always bad. Medicine is full of mysteries. One session looks at that. How did this or that or the other thing, these sort of strange things that when you look for them are more common than you think within medicine that you can't explain. And, you know, we have this language of science that sort of says things are reducible to this and that and the other thing. But, you know, a lot of the stuff that happens in life and in medicine can't be explained. And when you become open to that, you start seeing it all around you. You start seeing, you know, the good things that are there. And there's an exercise we have the students do during that week is what surprised me today, what inspired me today, what motivated me. The first few days, they'll say nothing, nothing, and nothing, 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 and nothing. And all of a sudden, they'll begin to notice these small good things that are in their life. Another session is on dealing with grief and loss. For example, the patients who don't make it, all the bad news doctors have to deliver. But Parmalee says pushing feelings away in fear isn't dealing with grief at all. Pretending it doesn't exist invites a collapse later. So doctors need to acknowledge their own grief to bear it in their patients. It is more human and it is more life-saving for your life to experience, acknowledge, and honor a loss. And that grief that comes with a loss is as natural as breathing. And we need not to fear it so much. And when physicians begin to honor in their own personal lives what they may have lost and to respect the grief process that they themselves needed to have had, then they can so much more easily tolerate it or embrace it when their patients are going through it. Parmalee says it's made a difference in how some doctors respond to patients' grief. For example, this fourth-year med student in obstetrics who described one experience. A teenage mother delivered a um, stillborn baby, and the boyfriend came in. With the stillborn baby resting on the mother's abdomen, the medical staff said nothing. They simply left the room, leaving the teenage mother and father and the student. She stayed with them, and she didn't know what to say. She felt so bad, but she stood there on one side of the bed, and the boyfriend was on the other, and then... Both of them were crying, but they weren't embracing or holding hands or anything. It was just kind of a shock thing. And what she did was reach out with her right hand and hold the boy's hand. And with her other hand, she held the mother's. And she stood there with them. And she said, you know, it made a difference for her because she felt that it helped her do something that was helpful because clearly... For this young couple, they needed that kind of connection around the baby. She said what she thought of later was, you know, that probably came out of what I learned about myself in, in the Healer's Art course. And without the course, the student told Parmalee, she probably would have left the room with everyone else, rather than staying, holding hands, and silently shedding tears. Just about as far from detached as she could be. But is that getting too involved? Sometimes you go too far feeling too little, but how is it we can bring ourselves back into that middle ground between those two lines of feeling too little and feeling too much? Because you have to feel. Medicine, teaching, research, whatever, is both a discipline of the head and the hand, but it's also the heart and soul. And without bringing all of them to bear on the matter, 
You're never going to be as good a teacher or never going to be as good a doctor or never going to be as good a scientist or never going to be as good a whatever unless you attend to all of those things. You know, it's sort of bringing your values, your innermost values to your actions. One of Parmalee's students told him he was becoming a doctor in the first place to do exactly that. At age 16, the student had found his father unresponsive on the floor. The man couldn't be revived in the emergency room. The son and his mother were told of his death by an ER doctor who then turned on his heel and walked away. The son vowed right then to become a different kind of doctor. We talk about the center of medicine uh, really being love, you know, that, you know, in the temple of the Greek gods, you know, of medicine, of Asclepius, the center of it was the goddess of love. So love is the center of medicine, and medicine is not a calling of fixing or helping. Helping is sort of a power over thing. I help you because I can, or fixing is I fix you because you're broken. What it really is is a profession of serving. I serve you because it's a matter of equals. You know, it's a matter of the soul. O'Donnell and Parmalee admit that the Healer's Art course is just a start. Many medical schools now continue those efforts to put compassion in their culture and their actions, as well as their words. In other words, to walk the walk. And doctors don't seem to have their judgment clouded when they're not quite so objective. Emotion is part of the decision-making process. Now doctors are learning how to make it work for everyone. I'm Reed Pence. Radio Health Journal returns with medical notes in just a moment. Chronic pain affects nearly 100 million Americans. For these patients, the condition is a heavy burden that consumes their life, taking a mental and physical toll. Unfortunately, many chronic pain patients are unsure where to turn after other treatments have done little to relieve their pain. For many of these patients, the latest advancement in spinal cord stimulation can offer meaningful pain relief and an improved path forward. The FDA recently approved Burst-DR Stimulation, a new therapy option for patients. Dr. Pankage Mehta of Pain Specialist of Austin tells us more about this new therapy from St. Jude Medical. My job as a pain specialist is to provide my patients therapy options that can alleviate chronic pain and improve their quality of life. Burst-DR stimulation is different than other spinal cord stimulation therapies. It was created by doctors to mimic naturally occurring patterns in the brain, which can address both their emotional and physical response to chronic pain. To take the next step to learn more about Burst-DR stimulation, go to PowerOverYourPain.com. That's PowerOverYourPain.com. Implantation of a spinal cord stimulation system can involve risk, such as painful stimulation, loss of pain relief, and surgical risks, such as paralysis, during the implantation procedure. Patients should talk to their physician to determine if spinal cord stimulation therapy is right for them. Medical Notes this week. Schools have apparently been successful at serving healthy lunches that keep kids from gaining excess weight. But a new study in the journal Obesity shows that children in kindergarten through second grade are gaining too much weight anyway, all during summer vacation. The study finds that by the time they're in second grade, more than 28% of kids are overweight and 11% are obese. People who have urinary tract infections are often told to drink cranberry juice, but a new study says you should go to the doctor instead. The study in the Journal of the American Medical Association finds that cranberry juice or cranberry capsules don't prevent urinary tract infections or help people get over them once they have an infection. 
And finally, science is coming out in support of chubby older men. The new book, How Men Age, reports that men carrying a little extra weight have stronger immune systems and are less likely to have heart attacks and prostate cancer. In fact, slightly heavier men are 50% less likely to die in any given year than their skinnier counterparts. What's more, studies show men sporting a dad bod are more attractive to the opposite sex. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. Research shows that California raisins may positively impact diabetic nutrition. Registered dietitian Dr. Jim Painter says... People with type 2 diabetes mellitus who consumed raisins during a 12-week study had a 23% reduction in post-meal glucose levels and a significant reduction in systolic blood pressure compared to a group eating a comparable amount of snack crackers. While cardiovascular disease is affected by various factors, these findings build upon an earlier study showing that raisins may significantly lower blood pressure and post-meal glucose levels among people people with prehypertension. Find more info at loveyourraisins.com. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at radiohealthjournal.net.